Hey, this is Brent Johnson, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. Brought to you by Pariah Pickups, quality handcrafted guitar pickups from Detroit. Check them out at pariahpickups.com. I also wanted to give a shout out to two brand new No Sleep Till Sudbury Patreon patrons, now members of the No Sleep Till Sudbury Vibration Nation, Mr. Mike Ladano and Mr. Derek Williamson. Welcome aboard, fellas. Listeners, you can also join the nation by supporting the show and in turn gain access to all kinds of previously unavailable stuff. Outtakes and bloopers from the show, deleted material, behind-the-scenes content, unreleased episodes, interactive opportunities, signed copies of all my books, lots of fun stuff. Just go to patreon.com slash Music for details. Hope to see you there. All right, welcome to episode 201. This week we're going to take a look at the mysterious circumstances surrounding the death of Doors frontman, Jim Morrison. Now, there's been a lot of speculation per the details of Morrison's death, including the assertion that there may not have even been a death at all. Some claim that he may have faked it to elude the spotlights of fame and notoriety. Jim Morrison was born in 1943 in Melbourne, Florida. His father was George Stephen Morrison, a U.S. Navy admiral who commanded U.S. naval forces in incidents that would eventually lead to America's involvement in the Vietnam War in 1965. When Jim Morrison was four years old, it was alleged that he was witness to a car accident in the desert that left several Native Americans lying injured on the side of the road. It was an experience that stayed with him through his teens and into his adult life and he referenced it often, and it turned up in a number of Morrison's performances in Ghost Song and Dawn's Highway from An American Prayer, and before that, in the lyrics to Doors' hit Peace Frog. Morrison would say that this experience would be a critical formative event in his life, and he often referred to recurring visions of, quote, Indians scattered all over the highway, bleeding to death. Now, Morrison's family members, on the other hand, recall this incident in a very different way. His father's account was that his family did drive by several Native Americans standing around following a car accident, and that one crying Native did make a very significant impression on a young Jim, adding that Jim mentioned that he thought about the crying Native often in the years following the incident. Morrison's sister doubted Jim's sharply contrasting recollection of seeing scattered, bloody bodies on the road, and told biographers that Morrison enjoyed exaggerating the incident and telling the embellished version of the story to others. Jim Morrison and his family moved around a lot during Morrison's childhood, relocating from Florida to San Diego, then to Virginia when Morrison was eight, on to Texas, and he finished grade six back in San Diego. Morrison attended high school in Alameda, California, before the family moved back to Virginia two years later, where he would eventually graduate in 1961. Through his high school years, Morrison read quite a lot, and he was particularly interested in philosophy and poetry, but not just the garden variety stuff. One of his English teachers actually went to the Library of Congress to confirm some of the titles Morrison referenced in essay papers he wrote just to make sure that the books actually existed. The teacher himself was quite well-read, 
but had never heard of some of the books that Morrison was reporting on in his assignments, and he suspected that Morrison may have just been making them up. But, sure enough, the books checked out. They were indeed real. But they were very obscure English books on 16th and 17th century demonology. The first glimpses of Morrison's fondness for alcohol and disruptive behavior came when he attended Florida State University in 1963. It was there that he was arrested for the first time at a football game, charged with disturbing the peace while heavily intoxicated in late September. A few months later, Morrison moved to Los Angeles to attend UCLA. He completed his undergrad degree at UCLA's film school within the College of Fine Arts in 1965. Morrison skipped the actual grad ceremony in favor of Venice Beach, and the school mailed his diploma to his mom. It was at Venice Beach that summer in 1965 that Morrison subsisted on canned beans and LSD and wrote poetry that would later serve as lyrics to many Doors classics, including their hit, Hello, I Love You. Morrison and fellow UCLA alumni Ray Manzarek would form the Doors that same summer after Manzarek stumbled across Morrison at the beach after having met his fellow film students months earlier. Manzarek was drawn to Morrison and his poetry, and it inspired him to convince Morrison to start a rock group together. Guitarist Robbie Krieger and drummer John Densmore would later round out the Doors. The Doors signed with Electra Records in 1967, and their single Light My Fire went to number one for three weeks in the summer of 1967. The band would appear on The Ed Sullivan Show a short while later, with Sullivan requesting that the Doors play two songs on the show, People Are Strange and Light My Fire. The censors of The Ed Sullivan Show recommended beforehand that the band make a lyrical change during their performance a change in the lyrics of the song Light My Fire, from Girl We Couldn't Get Much Higher to Girl We Couldn't Get Much Better. The reason for this being that the word higher was thought to be a drug reference. Now, the producer of the show conveyed this request to the band in the dressing room prior to the performance, and he received assurances that the band would comply. Then, of course, during the performance, Morrison looked right into the camera and sang the original lyrics, Girl, We Couldn't Get Much Higher. Ed Sullivan was livid, and he refused to shake hands with Morrison and any other band member after their performance, instead sending the producer into the dressing room to advise that the band would never, ever appear on the Ed Sullivan show again. Morrison looked up at the producer and said, Hey man, we already did the Sullivan show. Following the release of their follow-up record, Strange Days, the Doors had become one of the biggest bands in the United States. During this time, in late 1967, Morrison was arrested on stage during a Doors show in New Haven, Connecticut, which would give rise to his intrigue and mystique as a performer. During the recording of the Doors' fourth record, The Soft Parade, Morrison began to slip away from the rest of the band. He had already been known for being a heavy drinker by this time, but now he started showing up very drunk for recording sessions and showing up late for shows. He was also said to be suffering from anxiety during this period and shared with Manzarek that he felt like he was on the brink of having a nervous breakdown. 
Manzarek talked him out of quitting the Doors at this time, convincing him to at least stay until the recording of the Soft Parade was completed. By 1969, Morrison had gained a significant amount of weight, grown a mustache and a beard, and he started dressing less in his trademark leather pants and in jeans and t-shirts. He also became more obnoxious, attempting to incite riots during shows by swearing at audiences and offering to display his private parts to them. In March of 1969, six warrants for Morrison's arrest were issued by Miami police. Upcoming shows were canceled, and in September of the following year, Morrison was convicted of indecent exposure and profanity in Miami and sentenced to six months in prison on October 30, 1970. He was able to remain free, however, on a $50,000 bond while the conviction was under appeal. Following the releases of subsequent records Morrison Hotel and L.A. Woman, Morrison decided that he would go to Paris for a change of scenery, and the rest of the band agreed that that would be a good idea. So, in March 1971, his girlfriend Pamela Corson and he left for France, and initially it seemed to do him some good. In letters he sent back to America, he spoke very positively of how he was feeling and what he was experiencing there. He'd shaved off his beard and lost a lot of the weight that he had gained. On July 3, 1971, Jim Morrison was found dead by Pamela Corson in the bathtub of their apartment. The official cause of death was believed to be heart failure, but because it was not required by French law, no autopsy was performed. Four days later, Morrison was laid to rest at Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris in a small ceremony with no fanfare alongside poet Oscar Wilde and other artists who were buried there. The gravesite was incorrectly listed in the cemetery directory under Douglas James Morrison. The grave wasn't officially marked until French officials tried to place a shield over the plot, which was stolen two years later. Theft in the cemetery would prove to be a continuing problem. Ten years after Morrison's death, a sculptor designed and installed a marble bust and new gravestone for Morrison's grave to commemorate the 10th anniversary of his passing. Before being vandalized repeatedly, it was stolen outright in 1988. In 1990, Jim Morrison's father cleaned up the graffiti-laden, garbage-strewn site and placed a flat stone on the grave containing a bronze plaque bearing a Greek inscription that when translated to English, reads, True to his own spirit. Now, the controversy surrounding Morrison's death. The version of the story told to authorities on the night of his death is that he and Pam Corson sat around their apartment listening to records together. They took some heroin, and when Morrison began to react badly to the drug, Pam put him in a warm bath in the hopes of reviving him. When she realized that she could not revive him, she called the emergency services, but to no avail. He was pronounced dead at the scene, with the official cause of death being listed as congestive heart failure. But there have always been rumors and conspiracy theories detailing much different scenarios playing out that evening. 
as usual, ranging from the plausible to the downright bizarre, like the theory that there was a CIA operation in place to assassinate popular counterculture musicians in the 60s. People like Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, and the Rolling Stones' Brian Jones. One of the more popular theories was revealed in a book written 36 years later by a former Paris nightclub manager named Sam Burnett, who claimed Jim Morrison died in his club in a bathroom stall after what was thought to be a heroin overdose, and that two drug dealers brought Morrison's body back to his apartment. Now, the story goes something like this. While Morrison was in Paris, he partied a lot. He allegedly spent a lot of time at the Rock and Roll Circus, which was a trendy nightclub that Burnett managed, where it wouldn't be unusual to rub elbows with stars like Marianne Faithful and Roman Polanski. On July 3, 1971, at approximately 1 in the morning, Morrison went to the club, and he was joined there by two men. According to Burnett, these men were drug dealers who sold him heroin for Pamela Corson. At some point afterwards, Burnett noticed that Morrison had disappeared. A bouncer at the club later kicked in the door of a locked toilet stall in the club, and they discovered Morrison unresponsive. Burnett then said he sought out a club patron who was a doctor to come and examine the singer. Everyone present acknowledged that Morrison was in fact dead, and that he had traces of foam on his nose, mixed with blood, signs of a heroin overdose, according to the doctor. Burnett stated that he did not see Morrison take any heroin that night, but said the singer was known to sniff the drug because he was afraid of needles. Then, Burnett says, the two drug dealers insisted that Morrison was just unconscious, and they carried his body out of the club through a back stairwell. Burnett claimed he wanted to call the authorities, but the club's owner ordered him to remain silent on this topic to avoid a potential scandal. Burnett surmises that dealers must have brought Morrison's body back to his apartment and placed it in the bathtub. Morrison's girlfriend, Pamela Corson, the one person who almost certainly knew the absolute truth, died three years later of a heroin overdose. All right, one last consideration, one that fans have theorized since 1971, that Jim Morrison actually didn't die at all and possibly faked his own death. It's been said that Morrison had often commented about the faking of his own death, and there have been many so-called sightings of the Lizard King in recent years, and of course, plenty of conspiracy-driven analytical proof to support the fact that Morrison faked his own death for a number of reasons. One, to escape the trappings of fame. Or two, as part of something called Operation Chaos, a government strategy to discredit the peace movement, and a number of others. As recently as 2016, it was formally asserted that Jim Morrison was alive and well, living on a ranch in a remote area of Oregon, under the name William Lawyer. And when you look at pictures of this person, named Bill Lawyer, and I have, he does resemble an older version of Morrison. But then again, so does the cult's Ian Asbury, 
According to Robbie Krieger, Ray Manzarek would always say to him, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Jim turned up one day. Maybe one day, he will. All right, this has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen. Till next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon worldwide.